My name is John Chafee. I was trained as a pastor and this is one of the ways in which I try to do something good with that education. This is Begin Again. So if you are looking for a nuanced or interesting take on the Jesus tradition and all of its wisdom and all of its perplexity and mystery, then you found the right place. I sincerely hope that this helps you to rethink some things, to maybe grow in your own way for health and holiness, for your benefit and for the benefit of those around you. So again, welcome to Begin Again. All right, welcome. This is uh, another uh, Begin Again podcast, but this time we're doing another Enneagram conversation. We've had a good chance of doing a numbers, but a number of them, but this time specifically with Drew Mosier. Moser. Mm-hmm. Moser. Yeah, you got it right. Moser. Okay. That's what I thought. Yeah. Um, so Drew, can you introduce yourself before we talk about your book? Sure. So hi everyone. I'm Drew Moser. I do some writing and teaching on the Enneagram. I also uh, teach uh, in a graduate program at a university in the um, rural East Central Indiana region of the US. And uh, yeah, father of five kids. Uh, Wow. So busy life, but a lot of good things. Yeah. What do you use it? What is it that you teach right now? So we have a master's program in higher education and student development. So I teach uh, courses related to that, you know, preparing graduate students to get their master's degree and then get jobs working for colleges and universities. Gotcha. Yeah. I I think I actually saw a podcast a while ago. It was something on YouTube where you were brought on. And I think it was a dialogue between two people, one person that was for and one person that was against the Enneagram. I think you were one of them. You know, that sounds familiar. I can't recall specifically (laughs) (laughs) what you're referring to, but that sounds like something I would do. Yeah. That's fun. (laughs) Okay. Well, you wrote uh, the Enneagram of Discernment. That's what this is right here. And uh, I'm one of those people that that underline and highlight and do all that type of stuff right in the margins and all that jazz. But I'm curious, what is it, before we even get to this book, how did you fall into the Enneagram and how did you find its value? Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, that's a good story. So back in 2008, I was working for a nonprofit in Vancouver, British Columbia, Mm -hmm. um, doing work, uh, kind of in the more, uh, inner city areas of Vancouver, trying to figure out life as a Canadian, you know, and, and all of that working on this team where we worked with young adults, um, kind of sort of a gap year experience, so to speak. Oh, okay. Um, and uh, our team had what I call forced family fun, where we had our our supervisor <laughs> said we would we were going to do this um, personality assessment that we had to fill out, and then we were going to go to this workshop where this facilitator was going to. Uh, it this was my view, you know, just put us in a box and uh-huh. uh, give us some simplistic labels, and it was called the Enneagram, and I'd never really heard of it before. And, uh, 
I went in really skeptical, not going to lie. <laughs> I, I, I thought, uh, and this will give some insight into my personality type uh, on the Enneagram. I'm a type three. And so I thought it was a big waste of time. Oh. We could have been more productive doing a heck of a lot more uh, better things with our time than this. Uh, oh, interesting. Okay. This weird personality stuff. So uh, we took the ready. So the Rizzo Hudson Enneagram type indicator. And then, uh, as I recall, I don't think we received our results until we went to the workshop and it was facilitated by this guy who, uh, was trained in the Enneagram in some way. I, I don't even remember who, who it was that, that wow. facilitated the workshop. But as I saw my results and as, um, the facilitator was talking through them and this is, you know, this is not the case for everyone. Not everyone, you know, takes a test and it accurately describes their Enneagram type, but it did accurately describe mine. I, I had this experience wow. that, um, someone had been reading my mail or following me around for most <laughs> of my life. Yeah. And, uh, it, it was profound in that it spoke to things and gave language to things that I knew to be true about myself, but I didn't have the language for up until that point. Yeah. And so that's when I, you know, refer to the Enneagram as, uh, you know, coming into my heart, you know, back in 2008 yeah. and, uh, uh, and I I've used it ever since, um, because it's, I found it so helpful in my own life. Wow. So you've actually been toying with it, using it for 14, 15 years. Yeah, that's right. So, um, wow. my entire career has been spent working with young adults on, you know, exploring and understanding the big questions of life. Who am I? Mm. Why am I here? Where am I going? And I've found the Enneagram to be a really helpful tool for enhancing and increasing self-awareness because it's really hard mm -hmm. to navigate any of those questions about future or trajectory or plan or calling or any of those things if you don't have a good sense of who you are. And so I've been using it mm -hmm. for a long time. Now, uh, to be honest, I was pretty covert and careful about how I used it until the road back to you came out, which really. Yeah, because why would you uh, be covert? Well, I think because, um, you know, it, it looks weird, right? If you look at the symbol, <laughs> it, it looks yeah, weird. Yeah. And if you if yeah. you Google it, you find some weird stuff, you know, uh, nearly true. all of it's not true. It's, you know, myth. But because this thing is open source, uh, I think it can be received in some, you know, Christian circles as uh, suspicious at best, mm -hmm. right? And so I, I had to be cautious about which audience I used it with, that sort of thing. But then when the road back to you came out, that really blew the doors open within the Christian church yeah. for usage of it. And I was able to use it more, more widely. Yeah. Gotcha. I found, at least for myself, I think I probably discovered it maybe like 2014 or so. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, not quite as long as you, but it kind of came to the forefront of how I saw everything. But then kind of in more recent years, it shifted to the background as like a tool to bring out every so often. Love it. Yeah. You know, and so I'm not sure if it's like a screwdriver in the back pocket or something like that, but yeah, oh, it's a, it's a tool set. Yeah. I, I think that's the right approach. So I get, con uh, I get really nervous and concerned when I, you know, come across and encounter people who are obsessed with the Enneagram. And some people think I might be obsessed with it because I wrote a whole book on it. I, I co-host a podcast on it. So I, I'm steeped in this stuff. However, if you think it's the answer to everything, you've missed it, right? I think it right. is a tool. 
and you know you've heard the adage if everything if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail right mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. if you use the enneagram like a hammer and just assume that everything's a nail that's a misuse of the tool right absolutely so i think it's a really helpful tool in a lot of areas but mm -hmm. it's not the end all be all it's not the perfect solution to everything it's not a replacement for right um uh, f your faith system <laughs> or, yeah, or uh -huh. religious orientation. It's, it's, it's none of those things, but it is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. As a, as a five. So I'm the investigator that okay. wings, I go towards four. So I'm like the intellectual who knows how to cry. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. And, uh, at least for me, it was like, Oh, I'm so used to book learning and I love frameworks but this is a framework in a book that helps me to connect with people rather than with ideas. Yeah. And so yeah. for me, it, it helped to round out a lot of my personality, but as I've shared with some people, it's that interesting. Some people shut down because they feel so exposed, yeah. but in the same moment of being so exposed, they also feel so validated. Yes. So and that's in, fascinating. In that way, it's really powerful. It can be a really powerful tool because it does speak to unlike other personality systems, it really speaks to the core drives and motivations that uh -huh. are the why behind what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what you're doing in life. And that's a vulnerable place. <laughs> it's a, oh, it's absolutely. A, it's a tender place. Yeah. So I have one more question and then about the book. Why yeah. do you think it splashed onto the pop culture scene mm -hmm. at the time when it did? If you've been in the game yeah. since 2008, what made the past couple of years so interesting that it was finally received? Yeah, I think, um, you know, I have a few thoughts on that. My first thought is, I think in our age of information, yeah, where we have, your listeners won't, can't see this, but, you know, I'm holding up my phone, you know, where we have yeah. our untold amounts of data, literally at our thumb tips. Uh, I think we have realized that our information age has not necessarily made us any more wise. Ooh. Right. Uh huh. Yeah. And I think the Enneagram is a framework for understanding ourselves and one another that cultivates wisdom when it's used well. And that's compelling, mm. right? That's compelling. Yeah. So I think that's one uh, point. I think the other point is, I think we're, we're in a season in which we're trying to figure out how to reconstitute ourselves in community. Oh, um, especially this, after COVID. Especially after COVID, but this was, oh. the, it was already the, the, this was already a need pre COVID as a result of, I think the empty promises of social media, which, and I'm not completely anti-social mm. media. But mm -hmm. I do think the promise of social media is that it would connect us more deeply together. Right. And what we have found is that it actually has caused us to feel more lonely and depressed yeah. and anxious. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, in, or what Sherry Turkle calls in her book alone together, where we're surrounded by mm -hmm. people, but you know, staring into our phones, checking social media when there are, there are social. Right. When we're not even being had. social. Yeah. Right. And so I think the Enneagram is a way for us to better understand, okay, how do I connect and relate to other people 
um, in right. meaningful, helpful uh, ways. And I think that's, um, there's, there's great promise in it for that as well. Yeah. It, it feels to me like it's a really wonderful, wonderful tool for like self-compassion, you know, yes. you're like, oh, there I go again. But then it helps you also to have compassion on other people for when they fall into their routines yeah. as well. If you're healthy, you can be compassionate. <laughs> That's know? exactly right. I think so. Um, I think an, an initial, you know, encounter with the Enneagram can leave you feeling pretty crappy, <laughs> to be honest. That's right. Yeah. You, you, you feel really exposed and you feel like, oh, you, all you can see are all the weaknesses and challenges of your type. For most people, right? A lot. I get a lot of people who um, reach out to me for coaching, consulting. Oh, good. Because they bumped up against the um, what they feel are the limits or the capacities of their type, and they don't mm. know what to do. However, I think if you learn that each enneagram type is truly a mixed bag of absolutely of, of strengths, yeah. skill sets, and challenges right? Then you can develop compassion and understanding for yourself, right? And then you can also begin to develop appreciation and acknowledgement and understanding of others who are different in their personality than you. And that's a good thing, right? I think if we actually think about the ramifications of everyone being exactly like us, whatever, that's, that's a terrifying prospect, right? No matter what the type is. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Um, but it can really help us in that understanding and empathy, as opposed to thinking, why aren't they thinking about this the same way I, that I am? Or why are they oh, responding yeah. to the same situation so differently than I am? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then you find out they're motivated differently. Exactly. So then, yeah. so then this, this book, and I know I said this just before we start recording, I was excited because it seemed like your book was taking the Enneagram and talking about it in a way that the other books hadn't yet. You know, you start to read enough of the Enneagram books. You're like, okay, we're starting to see. Yeah. We're just repeating things, not bad things. It's not shallow things, but I was, I'm on the search now to find books that are unique. Sure. And yours, I think is the only one that talks about how we can get stuck in not making decisions. So yeah, it's called discernment, but it's about being stuck. Right. Yeah. Well, first of all, I appreciate you saying that because that was the goal of trying to write the book was to add something unique and distinct. Um, You know, when I work with my grad students on social science research, we talk about uh, achieving saturation when you've read enough of the literature that you're starting to see stuff over and over again. Yeah. So, and I feel like there's, it's easy to do that now within Enneagram content. There's, it's easy to get to that saturation point because there's so much out there that's kind of saying the same thing, but um, I think one of the things that I found um, uh, interesting about all the Enneagram content and the Enneagram craze is that I didn't feel like there was much helping us navigate the complex decisions of our lives, right? And I wow. thought that there was a lot of wisdom within the Enneagram framework to help us understand by um, per our type how our type helps and hinders our decision-making, Right? And that if we mm-hmm. just stay in the default kind of setting of our type without understanding, you know, how our type can hinder our decision-making, then we do get stuck. Right. And yeah. that's, and, and I think everyone can relate to the experience of 
feeling like they're in the same ruts, you know, of, mm -hmm. or they keep tripping over their themselves, right. In the same ways over and over again. And I think it's a lot of the times it's because we aren't uh, fully understanding what our personality can provide us in terms of decision-making uh, and uh -huh. in what ways it limits us. Yeah. So then in a, a brief overview, yeah. how would you say anger gets in the way of making decisions? How does shame get in the way and how does fear get in the way? If those yeah. are the three uh, primary emotions of types, right? what would you say? Yeah. Yeah. So um, I spend some time in the book uh, aligning these three core emotions of anger, shame, and fear to the traditional kind of triads of the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. So the eight, nine, and one forming the gut triad, the two, three, and four forming uh, the heart triad and the five, six, and seven, this would be your triad, right? Yeah. Uh, would, yeah. Yeah. Uh, be forming, you know, the head triad. And uh, so the gut triad has this really pronounced and enhanced and kind of perpetual experience with anger eight, nines, and ones. They're always kind of contending with their anger, right? Twos, wow. threes, and fours have a similar experience, but with shame. They're always mm -hmm. contending with shame. Uh, and five, sixes, and sevens similarly have this uh, really primary relationship with fear. Now, yeah. all types experience all three of these, but uh, a lot of times the, the personality type gets activated in the habits and patterns that it, it yeah. has as a way to try to manage or run from our core emotion. So eight, nines, and ones are trying to deal with their anger. Twos, threes, mm -hmm. and fours are trying to deal with their shame. Five, sixes, and sevens are trying to deal with their fear. Now, when we uh, are kind of bumping up against that core emotion, it becomes fairly easy to see how that gets in the way of good mm. discernment, right? Of, of good decision-making. So think about, and no matter uh, what type you are, think about when you're angry, right? What okay. happens to you when you're angry, John, you tend to, you probably get narrowly focused, laser focused on the thing that, that you're angry mm -hmm. about, right? Yep. And what happens in your body when you're angry? I mean, you tense up. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people have better posture. Yeah. I mean, I think anger is a pretty motivating It's Yes. It's I don't think it makes people, I don't think it makes people slumber. I don't think it makes people lazy or want to go to sleep. Right. Yeah, but we, be, we become, one. no, it does. It, it activates us to react, not necessarily to respond. Right. Ooh. Yeah. Right. That we, we become highly reactive when we're angry. Our cognition actually decreases <laughs> only to that, which we're angry at, you know, and <laughs> fixates on the thing that we're angry about. Right. So even if we're not in the room of the person we're angry about, you know, we're, we're, but we're experiencing anger. We're thinking about all the things we're going to say, right. Or how we're going to yeah. deal with them when we see them, you know, that sort of thing. And okay. what happens is that crowds out good, complex decision-making and discernment for other things. Right. Yeah. Um, because we get, uh, our, our, our thinking gets simplified to just to the issue of anger. Right. Mm. And so, and then, and anger gets kind of explosive. And so what happens then is that we can make, have some reactions that can, we can regret, <laughs> you know, we can, yeah. um, we can get kind of explosive or, um, you know, 
and each of the type has has uh, in that triad the eight nine and one have their own kind of way of dealing with that anger and expressing it um uh-huh. now the twos threes and fours have a similar experience but with shame and if we think about time and this is hard to do no one likes doing this but if we can think about times in which we've experienced pronounced shame right Mm. shame Mm. doesn't really kind of explode onto this art scene like anger does shame i liken it more Mm. to a fog that kind of creeps in right oh interesting and it kind of washes over us and then it and then it has this experience of kind of powering us down right where in limiting yeah. us from doing really anything because if we are feeling shameful we feel like we shouldn't be doing anything we are not worthy to do anything we're such a mess mm. and such a wreck that we don't deserve to do anything right or that uh, complex decision that we need to make doesn't even matter because i'm such a failure right i'm such a mess mm. i'm such a disaster yeah. and uh, it isolates us, right? When we feel ashamed, we want to isolate ourselves from one from others because we that shame feels so exposing, right? Oh. We don't want anyone else to experience it. And so when we isolate, then we also impede discernment because we're withdrawing kind of the wisdom of the community. Um, That's, okay. Yeah. I, I'm thinking of Brene Brown too. She also talks yes. about how shame, shame carries this disqualification for community. Like I don't deserve, I'm disqualified from having community because I'm so embarrassed of what I've done or am. No, I think he's exactly right. Um, Plus, am I going to really disagree with Brené Brown? Let's be honest. (laughs) 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 Who am I? Right. I know. Right. The patron saint of shame. (laughs) That's right. Shame, vulnerability. Um, But then the five, sixes and seven have this unique relationship with fear, right? Um, and when we think about when we're afraid, you know, what are we thinking about when we're afraid survival, right? Uh, (laughs) What do I need to do to survive? Right. Yeah. Um, and, and we kind of short circuit rational pathways because they're more complex. All we're thinking about is how do I survive this? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and when we think about what happens in our bodies, when we're afraid, you know, our breathing kind of quickens, our heart races, mm-hmm. right? Our muscles tighten. None of these are things that help us navigate complex, difficult decisions, right? That require yeah. nuance. And so that fear can be crippling or it can cause us to run, right? That fight, flight, or right. freeze, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, all, it can, all of those things can be kind of... Uh, instigated as a result of fear, which gets in the way of our ability to make good decisions. Yeah. So then it's, it's not like we should avoid each of those things. It's like, we have to find a healthy way of of working with them because that's That's also an issue. If you like shove down your anger or your shame or your fear, that's the problem of the three, six or nine from what I understand. Yeah, no, and it's really the problem of all the types in some ways, like they're, Mm. they're, they have these, um, unhealthy habits that if left unchecked tend to uh, use anger, shame, and fear in some unhealthy or negative ways, right? Or the personality type really kicks into gear as a way to get away from or plow Mm. through or um, as quickly as possible those core emotions, right? Depending on the type. And uh, I think a better approach is to uh, 
is you know to name it and therefore kind of tame it right because if you name it oh, and say yeah. i'm That's feeling good. angry or i'm feeling shame or i'm feeling fear something about naming it doesn't make it go away but it it's right. shadow doesn't loom so large right and if we're able to just acknowledge and sit with that for a minute and kind of work through it as opposed to run from it or just plow through it, um, then I think we're better able to integrate that tendency to have that experience of that core emotion in a healthier kind of overall whole holistic vision of who we are. Um, and, you know, truth be told there uh, with anger, there's righteous anger, right? With fear, there can be healthy fear, <laughs> you know? That's right. Um, shame is tougher, right? Because what is healthy shame? I think it'd be more, you know, we'd have to tra uh, kind of transform that concept into, uh, you know, maybe humility or... Mm. Um, oh, I see. Okay. Right. Uh, which I'm not... Because I don't know that I can come up with a, an easy way to get to healthy shame, right? <laughs> this idea that I am bad. Um, but I do think we can have, there's, there's probably appropriate and proper guilt at times. I think there's proper humility, right? To kind of counter our hubris and arrogance, those mm. sorts of things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it's actually early in your book, you have uh, information is less important than knowledge, which is less important than wisdom. And I yeah. feel like there's a, there's like a personalizing information is just out there. Knowledge, you right. kind of personalize it because you know it, it's no longer just in Google, but then wisdom. And this is, to be honest, I think the topic of wisdom and uh, it's the thing. I think we we're kind of reeling from a past couple five years of really foolish mistakes being made by people all over. Because sure. they don't understand themselves. They, they're thinking reactively and impulsively rather than responsibly. Yeah. Um, so then you wrote this book, The Enneagram of Discernment. Yes, to not repeat what other people have already said, but does it kind of, you must have written it because you saw that that was a lack. Yeah. There's nobody talking about wisdom. So how did you come to wanting to write this then? Yeah, I, I think a, f a few reasons. One, you, you've heard the adage, you teach what you need. <laughs> so yeah. I write what I need in some, to some degree. Um, I feel like my life is complex enough. I need wisdom and I want to cultivate yeah. wisdom. So, so there's a personal agenda there. Uh, beyond that though, I think there are plenty of examples and you alluded to this, John, that mm. uh, information and knowledge can both be wielded uh, in abusive ways. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Information. And we're seeing it now disinformation, right. Or, uh, we even have this notion of the knowledge economy, right? <laughs> which it kind of gets never heard this, of that. this idea that who, who owns and curates the knowledge can monetize it. Right. Ugh. And, um, you know, and, and this can go from something as benign as, you know, an, an educational system, right? Like universities like you and I work at, um, to uh, something far more kind of profit driven. Um, mm. Wisdom is, is that kind of category in which it's hard to come up with instances in which wisdom is abused. <laughs> can it be, right? Oh, that's a... Yeah. Hmm. I've never thought of that. Like wisdom can be weaponized. Sure. 
I oh, think, interesting. and I think it's, and I'm sure that there are probably people who can prove, prove me wrong here, but I think at least generally speaking, mm -hmm. I think wisdom is that thing that, um, is at some kind of level of purity and honesty that it is truly to the benefit <laughs> mm. of the common good. Right. And that when yeah. wisdom is like knowledge yeah. applied in all the right ways, right. It's, um, mm -hmm. to benefit yourself and others. Um, uh, and I think when we look at wisdom traditions, mm. you know, the, these are profound kind of lessons, uh, truths and beliefs that are passed down generatively, mm. right. Uh, from generation to generation uh, to benefit, you know, those that are coming next, yeah. right? That's yeah. a different thing than compiling and monetizing information and knowledge. Um, I also think too, you know, what I said before, you know, about the amount of information and knowledge that is available to us, it hasn't made us more wise. It also mm. can um, lead to, uh, you know, analysis paralysis, right? We can have, it's, yeah. there's so much that, what do we do with it? And I think wisdom can help us, you know, prioritize, it can help us curate, it can help us apply in healthy ways, the information and knowledge available to us. Yeah. Yeah. And that's not even something that can be done quickly. I know someone, someone told me once that wisdom is it's always dialogical. I forget what my mentor told me, but wisdom mm -hmm. isn't something done in isolation. You have to do it in conversation with another person or another discipline at the same time. I was like, oh, yeah. yeah. No, that, that rings true. That rings true. I, I haven't considered it specifically that way, but that makes sense. Yeah. I yeah. think it, it's not something that occurs in a vacuum, right? Um, yeah, there you go. It is one of those things that has to be applied in the context of, you know, community, uh, in some way, I yeah. think. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, this is kind of going back. There was a, a part earlier, you had said that the Enneagram is kind of open source. Yeah. Which is interesting. I, I don't think I've ever heard it talked about that way before, but I have had people ask me about the Enneagram and I've been able to say, well, is it Jeremy Wagner talks about a little differently than Jerome Libby does than like yeah, some yeah. other people do. So yeah. can you speak to how you see it uniquely? I think that's the beauty and the confusion of the Enneagram is that <laughs> no one owns yeah. it, right? No one owns it. Uh, yeah. And so um, what that, that really leaves the, uh, the person engaging the content to have discernment. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> In uh -huh. order to yeah. know uh, who they're listening to, what content that they're, they're uh, reading or consuming uh, is salient, right? And valid. Mm -hmm. And that can be tough to do in the Enneagram because, because it's open source, no one owns it. It can be left up to an individual's, um, you know, abilities, motivations, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you can Google the Enneagram and find some weird stuff, right? And, and just some strange application of it. Um, because no, there's no one religion that owns it. You know, there's yeah. no one 
organization that owns it. Uh, but you can find its use and application in just about every religion, just about every tradition. Um, right. You know, psychological spaces, new age spiritual spaces, uh, conservative Christian spaces. I, I could go on, right? And so mm -hmm. that can be a bit pretty confusing. Uh, I think the benefit, though, is it leads to um, lots of creativity and innovation. It can, right? Yeah, yeah. Is, uh, it, it's not controlled so tightly by someone who owns it, you know, for, you know, intellectual property rights. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's but not, you do uh, have patents. Yeah. It's not patent. No one has a patent on it. Now people have, you know, their own copyrights and patents on their, their various versions or approaches to the Enneagram. Mm -hmm. You have some distinct schools, some distinct kind of turfs or territories in the space, which can get... Yeah. So then, all right, I have two more, two more questions then. Yeah. And uh, I think that, well, you, you mentioned in this book, you talk about the, the vocation triad, the wisdom triad, and the practice triad. Yeah. And I felt like that's something that sets your book further apart. So can you run into those real quick? Yeah. What, what are, how do you understand them? Yeah. So what I did was I essentially tried to uh, explore nine key questions. See what I did there? Nine questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Enneagram has nine types. Um, might be a bit too on the nose, but I, I hope it's helpful in that um, I think when we're talking about discerning complex issues or decisions, I think these nine questions can be really helpful. They're not the definitive or comprehensive list, but I think... Mm -hmm. Most of the time, they're going to be really helpful, right? Uh -huh. And um, and so I'll walk through them quickly and then tell them why they're important for the Enneagram. So I do have them the nine questions divided up into kind of three territories or triads, right? The vocation triad, which is um, who am I? Why am I here? Where am mm -hmm. I going? These are the questions of identity, purpose, and direction, right? right. And then uh, I have the wisdom triad, which uh, is uh, what am I doing? What am I feeling and what am I thinking? And this connects very directly to the three intelligent centers of the Enneagram, our heads, our hearts, and our hands, yeah. right? And that we cultivate wisdom by accessing and integrating all three centers, right? And then uh, I have what I call the practice uh, territory or practice triad um, in which I look at uh, the three, our three, uh, or our triadic notion of time in which yeah. we talk about an experience time, um, which is what am I remembering? This is the question of the past. What am I experiencing? This is the question of the present. And what am I anticipating? This is the question of the future. Now, in terms of the Enneagram, when we understand our personality type, what we can do is we, we start to see in each of those territories, we tend to prioritize one of those questions and we tend to be pretty good at exploring yeah. and focusing on one of those questions within each territory and then that can be tends to be supported by a second question in that territory that we're decent at right but it really serves mm. in service of that primary yeah. question that we care about the most and those two questions tend to play a game of keep away from the third that we either neglect or distort <laughs> it right yeah <laughs> and yeah. i think we do that um to our own peril uh, and the cost is our own discernment and wisdom when we do that, right? So if we think about, mm. just to take one example, uh, as a type three, 
in, in that wisdom triad, I care a lot about what I'm thinking and what I'm doing. So I focus a lot on those questions. What am I thinking? What am I doing? Uh -huh. The question I don't spend as much time on and don't care about as much naturally in the mm. default settings of my type or what am I feeling? Right. Yeah. And so, um, I become more wise when I pay more attention to my emotional intelligence, when I pay more mm. attention to my emotional landscape and when I let my emotions have a seat at the table, right? And, and so each type yeah. has their own kind of journey with these questions. But I think um, by understanding our type better, we can start to see, okay, which, which question do I tend to overemphasize? Uh -huh. And which question do I tend to neglect? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's enormously helpful. And I mean, you said you, you deal a lot with uh, young adults. I do as well. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it seems as though so many of these 19 to 23 year olds, and then I often have meetups with people who are in their mid twenties and early thirties. Sure. There's so much like they're, if they're, ready for it there it's like they know that the way they see the world has hit its limits and now it's time to expand their vision of how they're sure. going to interpret and view the world yeah and i thought those the nine questions and and the idea that we actually avoid certain questions yeah i think that was that's probably what i'll remember this book for there are questions that i might be avoiding unless I'm consciously thinking about it. Yeah. 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 Because course, I think I would each... say that. Yeah. I'm thinking <laughs> about it. Right. 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 Yes. As a five, <laughs> you would. Um, but, uh, and each type has their own set, their own mix of their, you know, their favorite questions, their mm -hmm. second tier. And then the third tier that they prefer to never consider ever again. Right. If they're honest. Right. And, um, and knowing that is kind of a first step to, um, yeah. To, more growth, more wisdom, more development. Yeah. It, it's like, uh, I think it's Carl Jung. He talks about the first half of life and the second half of life. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And it feels like there's something interesting happening because it seems as though people are finding the Enneagram and they're starting to do second half of life stuff earlier. If they find yeah. the Enneagram, does that make yeah. sense? No, it does. I think, um, I think, yeah, I, I think there's some interesting considerations for what the Enneagram has to say, yeah, for that second half of life, right? <laughs> Once yeah. you know who you are and have kind of mm. settled into that in, in some good ways, right? Um, yeah. There's still, I think, wisdom through understanding our personality type that can be really helpful for that second half. So this is not, you know, a destination where you just discover right. your type and then that's the end of it. You know, I think um, the mantra mm -hmm. of the book is really type is the trailhead, right? And then once you understand your personality, it's the type, trailhead, that's such a yeah, good line. It's the trailhead to okay. a deeper understanding of who you are. Right. And, um, and that's a lifelong journey and process. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Last question. Yeah. And, uh, uh, I think this might resonate with the three where, what do you see missing in the, Enneagram conversation right now, hmm. right? There might be some blind spot. What is, what is a, an angle or like a topic or part of the Enneagram that you think we really need to spend some time exploring this part of it? Yeah. So I think I've spent more time 
recently on this notion of the instincts. And so there are certain schools mm. within the Enneagram that mm. talk about uh, the subtypes. So <laughs> for those that already are overwhelmed by nine personality types, buckle up because then there are <laughs> then there's three 27 for every type. And so there are really 27 subtypes, you know, when you can, you keep peeling the onion. Yeah. But I think, um, I think uh, a lot of that, the notion of subtypes in many circles in the Enneagram is based off of a, sort of an antiquated understanding of our instincts biologically, right? Oh, interesting. Okay. And um, I think, uh, I think we have more than three instincts available to us. And so, the, I mean, the, the most common way of teaching this is that you're either um, social dominant, sexual mm -hmm. dominant, or, you know, some circles don't like that word. So they use one-to-one one -one. Right? or self-preservation. Yeah. Right. And then they tie this back to, um, you know, kind of prehistoric humans who have these three mm. instincts, right. To, mm. uh, you know, to socialize and gather together to procreate and to preserve themselves. And so I, you know, that's totally fine. But I also, I also think, you know, biologically, instinctually, there's gotta be a lot more going on <laughs> to us than that. Mm. And so, um, so I think that there's more work to be done there. You know, there's one particular, um, teacher, uh, called Mario Sakura who does the, uh, works, uses the Enneagram almost explicitly in corporate context and who does, has a totally different approach to the instincts that I find really interesting and compelling that I think can be a helpful way to, um, maybe help us begin to develop a better understanding of how do instincts play a role in personality. Right. So that'd be sure. one. Uh huh. I think, I think another thing, this is more, I'm, this is becoming more of Drew's pet peeves with the Enneagram. So I don't know <laughs> if this is helpful to your question or not, but, um, I think in Enneagram circles, we use the term ego. Oh yeah. Uh huh. And essence a lot. Right. Yes. Uh huh. And I, I, I think, uh, and often when it's used, it's not, uh, carefully understood or even defined. Right. As this, and in, and so what that leaves people to encounter is that ego is bad, essence is good, right? Mm. And what that can lead people to surmise is that once I understand my personality type, I have to eradicate it. I have to kill it, right? <laughs> I have to get oh. rid of my personality. And I think that's really problematic. You know, first, mm -hmm. um, if you sure. ever met someone with no personality, you know, they're, they're, they're not fun to be around, right? Yeah, and that's mentioned your personality and your ego had, uh, can have a really healthy place is a really critical part yeah. of your psyche. Now, no one likes someone that's egotistical or an mm -hmm. egomaniac or on an ego trip, but that doesn't mean that the ego itself is bad. Right. And so I think we need some correction there on these, uh, mm. concepts of ego in essence. Cause I think a lot of Enneagram teachers talk about once you understand your type, then you, you need to kind of deal with the ego so that you can live more in your essence, whatever the heck that means. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't find that as yeah. helpful or accurate. So I think we need some work mm. there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm always curious because like you said, it's open source. What is the new, new, like an onion? What's the new layer that can be discovered about it? Yeah. I'm, I, I wonder that too. I'm ready for it because I'm kind of tired of the 
Instagram listicles of the Enneagram and yeah. you know, uh-huh. what's the best smoothie for your type or, you know, some of these kind of ridiculous or absurd things that are out there. But, um, yeah, I, I do wonder what the next phase of it is because the Enneagram has been around a long time and the craze mm-hmm. will come and go, but the Enneagram will still be around and be helpful to a lot of people. And I think, and I think the, the next phase of it might be, how do we talk about it? and structure the Enneagram in ways that are really helpful to a broader swath of people, Mm, often mm -hmm. in professional contexts, right? So I I see a lot of inroads into the corporate world, the corporate space, trying to figure out how do we work well together in this kind of post-COVID work from home uh, type world, right? And I think the Enneagram, that could be kind of the next phase of it, if I'm guessing, you know? Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. I think uh, Beatrice Chestnut, she already wrote a book about Enneagram. If you have an Enneagram boss who's like a seven or you've got a seven employee, how do you deal with relating yeah. to each of those? I was like, oh, that was really interesting. Yeah, I yeah. think there, there are some insights too in terms of leader, yeah, leaders, leadership implications for each type, followership you know, implications yeah. for each type, you know, um, as well as just kind of working together. Yeah, some of those things. Cool. Yeah. Well, um, where do you think is the best place to get a copy of your book? You have your okay. own website too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think um, if you want to get in touch with me, I think the best place to do that would be typetrail.co. typetrail.co. Yeah, That's right. Typetrail.co. That's kind of my Enneagram uh, work home. And then if you want to buy the book, um, you know, you can go directly to the publisher fallscitypress.com if you want to go straight to the publisher and order from that um that's always best for the publisher and the author or um (laughs) totally fine no judgment here if you just want to get it off of amazon you can do that too that's totally fine Mm -hmm. yeah and uh you also have the enneagram podcast fathoms yes so what is it that you do there you're a co-host so i yeah, we I have three co-hosts who all do work in the Enneagram space. And what we do, as the name implies, we try to provide a different uh, sort of Enneagram podcast in that we really try to dive deeply on the Enneagram. Yeah. And so uh, a ton of Enneagram podcasts out there do a great job of just finding people of note and interviewing them about their type, right? And oh, so, cool. There's a lot of people who do that. Well, that's not us. You know, we're looking at kind of digging deeper. Um, And so if you're looking for a kind of a a deeper, you know, getting beneath the surface of Enneagram content in podcast form. Yeah. Check us out. Fathoms and Enneagram podcast. So we are about to release our fourth season here shortly. Mm. I think in April. That's awesome. Yeah. In April, 2023, we should be rolling those episodes out. Yeah. That's exciting, man. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed this. I I told some friends I was going to be doing this and they were jealous. So I'm really excited. (laughs) Not that I made this was a blast. (laughs) This was a blast. It's really fun. Yeah. Thanks for having me. All right. We'll see you again. Bye.